Well, guys, football might have stopped in most places around the world, but we are still here. This is your virtual bra, your barbershop, your shisha joint, your place to get the best virtual jollof rice in the world. Welcome along to the On The Whistle podcast. I'm your host, the crazy Zain Nabi. Um, with us, we have the regular back four. Starting lineup in fine shape. Starting off in Grey's Essex with Courtney Freeze, the only one of us on this panel who's played professional football and won a trophy in South Africa with the Premier Soccer League. Courtney, how tricks? Very happy to be here, Zane. Um, Honoured to be talking to Mr. Uton this afternoon. Um, just very happy. Um, the school is closed, which makes me even more happy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> cannot wait uh, to get this podcast going today. Amazing, amazing. And we'll get to our big guest in just a moment. If we move from the buzzing metropolis of Grey's Essex, we're now heading to the capital of Cameroon for Yaounde's finest sports media marketing executive and the founder of the Best of Africa Awards, Samuel Eto's unofficial hero, Francis and Queen. <laughs> How do you follow that? <laughs> I'm lost for words. Um, all in all out here, we have less, less Corona conversations and a lot more conversations around football. So it's nice. Uh, we've enjoyed the uh, return of the games with the screens. Um, it, we're enjoying the new normal. So no complaints from out here. Sunny. Amazing. Hot. That's the way we like life, sunny and hot. And talking about sunny and hot, we now head to our North African football expert, the editor of kingfoot.com, and a fan of the guest who will be appearing on our show today, the club at least, that he was a stalwart for. Ahmed Youssef, how is life with you? It's all, it's all good, thanks. And yeah, as you said, uh, Spurs fan, so this is a very exciting uh, time. I'll kind of uh, hope to have a great conversation about Spurs and uh, find out some more about that amazing 80s period. Amazing, amazing. And, you know, my job as the host is to build up the guests, but you guys know who we have today on the show. It's the amazing, talented, one of the most um, managers who carries himself with a distinction not many do. He's been likened to the Barack Obama of football managers. It's Chris Hewton. Um, a man who played in the successful Tottenham teams in the 1980s, where he won the FA Cup twice and also brought home a European trophy when the team won the UEFA Cup in 1984. He was the first black player to represent Ireland and has managed so well in the Premier League with Newcastle, Norwich and most recently Brighton. Chris, an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. Um, tell me, as we get into it, where does jollof rice rank on your favorite foods to eat? Well, it, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly very high because it, it, everybody's very conscious of my, um, my background. But it's very high, not only, not only because it tastes well, but, but obviously because of the health issues as well. And, and um, myself being in an, in an environment and a, and a business where we have to keep ourselves in the best possible shape, then there's certainly nothing better. I can't, I can't fault you there. Tastes good and is healthy. Um, Chris, you have an amazing dual heritage. You're Irish, 
as you go in, would you like to tell people a little bit about your story, where you're from, where you grew up, um, and how mom and dad met? Uh, well, I, I I would certainly be older than than any, anybody else on the, the the panel today, and for some, considerably. So, you know, I, I am talking about different times. And um, you, you're right, my father, Ghanaian father and an Irish mother and, and you know, and met at a time in, in England where it was it was very difficult for both, you know, for um, black people coming from, of, of course, the, the African continent and the, probably the Caribbean continent as well it was very difficult. And this would have this would have been in the 50s, in the sort of early to, to, to mid 50s. And and both had the same pathways. My dad came to England for a reason. He came to study. Um, my mother came to work um, and they they met. And uh, I think relatively quickly afterwards, you know, as it was in them days, once they were together, um, family took over. And um, that sort of waved the way for their pathways, I think, from then onwards. And my dad ended up working for, for a number, a number of years, not in not in the... Um, the area that he wanted to work in, he came to study medicine. Um, but I think when you have children at that age, the most important thing is is that you've you've got to be to be able to provide for your family. So um, my dad worked right through um, his life period. He's still around, as is my mother. Uh, and I say they went through some very difficult times, very difficult times of of racism in the, the 60s and 70s and and thankfully thankfully they're both in in very good health and uh, and I'd like to think I'd like to think that my upbringing with them is is in some way um, created the personality that I am Chris I think it's absolutely amazing that your parents are still around and there's so much history there's so much knowledge um, there's, you know, family is a blessing, right? These are the real things we're blessed with in life. It's not money. It's not power. Uh, it's it's not success. It's, it's family. And I'm intrigued. When you were growing up, um, how was the Irish influence? How was the Ghanaian influence? And what was it like growing up as 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 English um, in, in, in East London, if I'm correct? Um, I, I think when you are, I think when you are growing up and you're, you're young you know i think you tend to take a lot of things in your stride and and i think even you know aspects of of racism that of course existed in them days i think when you are um when you are that young you know i think you find it hard to comprehend i think it's only as you you get older and you go through your teens and you become a young man that you you look back on so many circumstances that were difficult and so many circumstances that, that in, involved an environment and involved racism at that, at that time, in that era. But I think when you're young, you know, and I was, and I'm fortunate I've got a brother who's one year younger than me and, and all we did was play. You know, we, we, were, we were fortunate that we played, we were in an era, brought up in an era where you could play out in the streets you know, until it was dark and you were dragged back into the into the house, and and it was the same day after day after day. But it's it's it's, it's as you get older, and you start 
So perhaps be a little bit more conscious of your background and your heritage and what what my uh, Irish heritage and my Ghanaian heritage meant to me. Then I think you start to think a little bit more deeply about you know some of the issues and some of the, um, the situations that that you would have that you would have gone through. So I think as a, as a child, I can't say that I had a, a bad childhood. I think I had a very good upbringing with my parents. They gave us what they could, um, but they worked. And they worked, you know, long hours to to provide for the, for the three of us. Chris, how did your love of football come about? How did you how did you get playing football? I think I read somewhere that um, your dad wasn't a, a football fan. Is, is that right? Uh, no, no, he wasn't. Um, you know, he's 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 now at the age of um, ninety two. He's he's now a football expert. Um, and 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 has been a football expert for a number of years now. Um, Does he but, ever give you advice uh, <laughs> on your team selection? Yeah, well, well, surprisingly, surprisingly, most of the advice he, he gives me is what he's heard the pundits say. You know, <laughs> a, a few days, a few days before. So I think I think there's some some sort of correlation to what he hears and what he's what he's prepared to say. Um, but I think what he has done is, you know, over my career, he's, um, his interest in football, of course, has got greater. It's, it's more personal and, and because of my involvement, he watches a lot of football now, but, but no, it's true to say that my dad had no interest in, in football. He wasn't, he was always working. So, you know, in an era where now you, you watch, um, kids go to football on, on a Saturday and, whether you know whatever level that is and of course the parents take them have a very keen interest um my dad didn't and he was he was always working he was a good you know family man but that but they were the important things things for him and um i think what all he was keen that 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 myself and my brother in in playing football enjoyed what we're doing but yes he, he uh, and and it would be it would be uh, okay to say that it was only probably it was only probably as I got towards um, professional terms at, at Tottenham that he came to see me play a few times um, and that was that was one not because of, of a lack of interest but because he was he was always working amazing amazing and um when you were were growing up um was the first goal to try and become a professional and maybe play for England? Um, you would have grown up remembering the '66 World Cup. Um, yes, yes, we, we we would have done, but 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 I think it's different. You know, if if I look at if I look at the era now and the young players that are playing now, you know what they see, what they see is is round the clock football. What they see is is the money that players can earn now and. And the fame that they can have now, and um, Sky Sports and and computer games and so on, and I, and I think they see that, and I think that that also um, you know drives them from what they see. But um, what we have to remember is, in, in my era, we had you know we had match of the day on on Sunday, and then I think um, sorry match of the day on Saturday night, and I think the big match on Sunday, and that's if he wasn't out playing. So that the the I don't think so many young kids grew up thinking, um, you know, my aim is to be a professional footballer. It was around it somewhere, 
but maybe not to the levels that it is now. I think the, the most important thing was playing, playing and enjoying playing, playing out in the streets. And I say that in them days, you know, we, we would play out, you know, we'd finish school, go down to the end of the, the road, jump, it, jump over the fence of a local school, and we would play for probably two hours. Your mum would call you in for dinner, you'd go back out again, and then you would be dragged back in again, you know, once it got dark. All we wanted to do was play. And, and I remember, I can remember, um, uh, which is something that would never happen now. I remember when, uh, when I was a schoolboy at, uh, at Tottenham, probably around 16 years of age, and I would play three games on a Saturday. I would play for Tottenham. Wow, Newport. that's incredible. I'm sorry, at the weekend, I would play three. Uh, I would play for, for uh, Tottenham youth team on a Saturday. I would play for a team Saturday afternoon. And then I would play for a Sunday team. So literally three games over the weekend, which um, sounds crazy. Um, and certainly in the modern game with sort of health and safety issues, and um, it, it would certainly never be allowed. No, of course not. I'm intrigued. When you were out there playing as a as a young kid, like we all did, we used to all imagine we were different. Um, we were different people when we played. I know. Um, I think Courtney, even though he's a Liverpool fan, thought he was Eric Cantona when he was running around. Um, I ran around thinking I was Philemon Masinga, um, and I'm sure Ahmed and and Francis had the same thing. When you were playing as a kid, who did you imagine you you were? Um, I, I, this is going to sound probably um, a little bit boring, but nobody. I, my, my pathway was very different. No. Yeah, my pathway, mm -hmm. I must admit, was was very different. And and even as regards, um, and and maybe maybe this stems from from my family background and my dad, my dad not really having a, a, a great interest in football and certainly not supporting supporting a team. Mm. People ask me that um, you know who I supported as a as a young kid. And um, and I and when I tell them, you know, I didn't support a team. You know, I was so mad about playing. It was, you know, the, the playing football was a be all and end all for me. And and I didn't really had. I mean, of course, at the time there was the Manchester United and, and George Best, uh, and because because of the area that I lived in, I lived um, quite very close to West Ham West Ham Football Club. And that was my club, and and at the time, the the sort of standout players were, of course, the 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 England internationals. But you know, if if there was an association that you had were with the black players that were playing at the time, you know, and particularly because of some of the the racial issues at the time. But it would have been you know Clyde Best, and and after that, a player called Addy Coker, and uh, they went through sort of terrible times there. You know, as in an era. And say where there wasn't so many black players players playing, but I didn't. And and because I lived very close to West Ham, everybody thought I must support West Ham. But that wasn't my 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 drive, ambition, feel. And and maybe that was a little bit because of my upbringing. But I just wanted to play all the time. So there wasn't there were the ones that I looked up to, but there wasn't the ones I wanted to be. Um, I just wanted to play. No, fair enough, fair enough. I think this is a good time to maybe bring in Francis, who's on the continent. Um, Francis, um, what would you like to ask Chris? Hey, Chris. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, I, I, I know you as a family man, and the relationship you have with your father is truly amazing to see. Um, just to continue along the lines of background, 
Um, you played for Ireland, if I'm right. Um, at, was Ghana ever an option for you or the fact that maybe your father didn't care much for football kind of gave you a, an out uh, with ease or you didn't have a connection with the continent maybe in your youth or tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, uh, the the connection that I, that um, that I I would have had with Ghana would have been through my through my my father, of course. Um, we didn't, as a family, we didn't go to um, Ghana when I was young, and 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 actually even even to Ireland. We, um, as a as a young a young man, I only went on one occasion because. We, we would always have family members that, that would come over and and probably to put into to some perspective of um, of of the of the family growing up and the family environment growing up I had a mother and father that, that both worked um, and even from you know we had three children um, I've got one one brother a year younger than me and a sister two and a half years older but I think even you know from from an expense point of view and what it would cost to, to travel that, you know, that would have been um, certainly a part of the reason why we, we never went to Ireland as a family so much. And certainly we didn't go to Ghana, which would have been far more ex expensive. So, so what's in me, in my upbringing, is just the influences of my, my mother and father. Um, uh, I picked Ireland because um, uh, uh, Ireland picked me. You know, at the time I'd broken into the Spurs side. I hadn't been in the team so long. You know, I, I made my debut in '79. In uh, at the beginning of the season, the fourth game of the season, I ended up playing right the way through. Um, so it's probably only I'd only been in the Spurs team for a couple of months when I had the opportunity. Now, at that stage, there, there had been some talk of representing England or England coming in for me because even if I say so myself when I broke into the team I had done very very well and um, but I think at the time I think if if Ghana had come in for me at the time then there would have been a decision to have been made um, but certainly when Ireland came in for me there, there wasn't really a decision because it wasn't a question of you know, Ireland or England, because England hadn't come in. It wasn't a decision of Ireland or Ghana, because Ghana hadn't come in. And um, so it was because they came in. And it was, it was for me, ended up a, a, a very good decision because I ended up playing for, for a 10-year period. And, and certainly something that I was very proud of um, at the time was to be the first black player to play for, for the Republic. And, and I've always been perceived very well over there. Uh, it's really remarkable. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe like one of your most treasured memories or an experience you had with that national team or something that, I don't know, that stays with you till today? Well, that's a question that's quite easy. Um, I, I, I made my debut for, for the Republic in uh, Republic of Ireland in 79. Um, and and uh, I played in a very gifted team, you know, a, ver a team that had a lot of players from 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 Arsenal, from Manchester United, from Liverpool, you know, players like Lee Liam Brady, Mark Lawrenson, Dave O'Leary, Ronnie Whelan, Paul McGrath, Frank Stapleton, um, 
Ray Houghton. I mean, so many, so many good players. Um, but we was never able to get over that line. And we, we had just missed out on, on major championships. When in, in 1986, Jack Cholton, who, who very sadly passed away um, last week, took over the team, gave us a, a little bit more direction uh, in more ways than, than one, in a, in a, certainly in a way of playing and you know, a different voice, different management style. Uh, and we qualified for the European Championships in, in 1988. And, and that was the first major championship that, that the Republic of Ireland had qualified for. Um, and it was a, a great occasion. And, and there's always been this rivalry, of course, between the, the Republic of Ireland and England. And who'd we draw in the first game is, is, is England. So you've got, you've got this Republic of Ireland team that that half of us that played were were that had English heritage that were 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 born born in England and and, and qualified because of an Irish mother. We had a couple that qualified for because of Irish grandparents. So this rivalry was became even bigger, and we managed to beat him in that first game, and it was a, a, a really memorable um, championship. Some some might remember it. Um, Holland won it. And some might remember it for this this amazing goal that that uh, Van Basten uh, scored, I think against uh, Russia at the time. But it was a tremendous tournament for us. And and anybody that's followed the Republic of Ireland um, national team will know that the supporters are are the most incredible supporters. They they remind me, you know, they remind me of uh, of an African support. You know, incredibly friendly, never any trouble when they travelled abroad, but but would travel in their thousands. And uh, so, yes, certainly for the Republic of Ireland, that would have been the, 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 the highlight for me. And for Spurs? And for Spurs, early again. Um, I was fortunate in, in my time at Tottenham. We, we, we unfortunately lost the, the, the FA Cup final in 87. But I was fortunate to win it in 81, uh, 82, and to win the uh, UEFA Cup, which is, of course, now um, a form of sort of the Europa Cup. Um, was that the last time Spurs won a trophy? A major uh, trophy. A major trophy. <laughs> a uh, European trophy. Oh, we must speak the truth. This podcast is about the truth. We must speak the truth. I mean, I think you're going to have to put him right, I think. At least we can say with one European, you know, we're, we're a North London club that's actually won a European trophy. So that's something that we can, we can say. So. We, can, we can hold on to. Um, but, but, but the, the uh, UEFA Cup in 84 was, was incredibly special, but... But I think 81 Cup final that a lot will remember because of the the wonderful goal from um, solo goal from from uh, Ricky Villa. Uh, so a lot will remember the final for that. But I, but I think probably mostly uh, the same with the Republic of Ireland because it was my first achievement in it at international level. This was my first achievement at club level, and I, and I played in a team with uh, Aussie Ardealers, uh, Glenn Hoddle. Steve Perriman, Garth Crooks, um, Steve Archibald, some some wonderful players, um, and for a lot of us, not all, but a lot of us, it was our it was our first 
sort of major achievement in the game. So for us to do that all together um, was something that um, that uh, I'll never forget. And of course, because of the era that we're, we're that we're living in now, for anybody, for any of us that would have played at the time, that thought that you might forget it, you know, there are so many um, highlights that 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 come up every now and again that's a reminder of it so so yes it would be the 81 uh, cup final and as you said there you played in a kind of with a lot of great players um who, who for you at that spurs side was kind of the best player that you played with oh that's 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 always been a very difficult uh, question for me i'm 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 going to i'm going to name two players and um one one because of what he achieved and and the aura of him and one and one because of his ability natural ability so i would have to say Ozzy Ardiles um because um he came with a world cup winning medal as such you know having won the world cup with with argentina um and of course not many players do that um, but it, but that was something that he that he almost carried with him, you know. He carried that air of confidence with him in in every game, and and Ozzy was was always a believer, you know. Even though that that wouldn't have been the case on a lot of occasions, Ozzy always believed um, that that he was the best player on the pitch, and you know, not not in in simple terms, not in a flash way, um, not in an arrogant way, uh, but he just had that self uh, self belief. So. Ozzy Ardiles, certainly, if, if I'm talking about my period at Tottenham. Uh, but the most gifted player that I played with is Glenn Hoddle. That, um, uh, and you always knew, you know, when when you when you're evaluating players, you, you, it's it's what they do in pressurised moments on on a football pitch, and so and that's for for everybody to see. Um, but when you see a player day in day out on the training pitch and the things that he can do and you know, small-sided games where you just can't get the ball off him, and he can do everything with his left foot that he can do with his with his his right foot. Um, you know, it's a, it's a level of ability that that you know most teams you know will have you know will have one of them players or none of them players, and you, know, you get that under a period of time. So for me, um, the two, but Glenn Hoddle certainly the most gifted. And, and I think you overlapped a bit at the end with Paul Gascoigne. He was kind of there. Kind of, was he still too young at the time when you were there, or what was he like? No, it's it, um, we overlapped for for a period for about I think it was about a year a year period. Mm. Um, no, at that, at that stage he was, he was very much in his prime. At yeah. that stage, um, personality he was he's very naughtiest uh, or. Or, what, do you, what do you mean, Chris? <laughs> or or um, uh, creative, uh, I, I, I could say. Um, no, I mean the, the stories about about um, uh, Paul are, are legendary, and I mean one one of them that I, that I can share with you, um, because it would be common knowledge, is that we um, um, we used to have people come to to the training ground and. There was one individual fella that uh, that most of the players knew that would come. He was quite friendly. He used to do a few things for 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 the players. And uh, and on on one occasion, um, uh, Paul Gascoigne uh, came to training with his dad's camper van um, type of thing. It's 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 hard to des to describe what it is, but it's 
it's um, it's a um, obviously a caravan type um, vehicle with um, with a sort of back top. And um, what he did do, there was a uh, he threw a ball at the top, which which could nestle there, you know, quite quite comfortably. And um, and asked the, the the because it had gone up, and asked this particular fella, you know, could he climb up because he had a ladder on the side? Could he climb up and get it? Well, that that was the opportunity. When he went at the top, that was the opportunity for for Paul Gascoigne to jump in the car and decide to drive round um, round the area, whizzing round roundabouts before he brought him back. So you've got this picture of Paul Gascoigne driving this car with this fella sort of clinging on for for dear life on on, on the top of it. So, <laughs> so um, uh, that that was that was uh, Gascoigne create not his creative best because there are there are there are numerous players that, that were very close with him that could tell you you know far far bigger and greater stories than that Chris just uh, just coming back to you, you said a bit earlier that you broke into the Spurs team almost not expecting to that season when you made your debut and went on to play quite a few games uh, but what was the culture like for a youngster breaking into the team? Was there this culture of support, the experienced players helping you along? What was it like? Um, I think there, 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 there are two things. You know, if, if we talk about the, the general um, culture of, of breaking into the team, there's one thing. And, and I think it's certainly in present times. Um, but we also look back and think, you know, what was the culture like for a young black player to to break into the team? So I think the two would be different. I think the culture for for in general for a young player to to break into the team, you know, wasn't you know wasn't so difficult in some in some ways, because um, certainly if I look at the the atmosphere around the, um, the, the team, the, the training environment. You know, wouldn't have been, uh, and that's not detrimental to them times. It wouldn't have been, you know, with the the, the professionalism as what it is now. Mm. You know, certainly there was a, a culture at the time. There was a drinking culture. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, there was a culture that you needed to be one of the one of the lads, and um, if if what if the team were going out, generally everybody would go out. So I think you was you was very quickly included in that, included in a, a lot of the banter, a lot of the the, um, the 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 things that went on in in that environment. And remember, you know, if I'm looking at what we have now in these huge squads, you know, first team squads of 25 and so, the the, the squads weren't so big then. The only thing the only thing that that younger players would possibly have experienced, depending on where they went, you know, were, you know, a lot of the first team players were tough individuals, you know, and you could have gone into a, an environment. Fortunately, I didn't because we had a few young players there. But you can get environments where, you know, the, the, the older players, you know, they would have saw it as the younger players have got to earn their stripes. So, you know, they've got to be a certain way around the senior players. And, and some of the senior players in, in the English game and in that environment would have given younger players, you know, a tough time. Fortunately for me, that wasn't the case at, um, at Tottenham. Um, the other aspect, which was, you know, a cultural thing, 
it, it was very difficult. You know, I, I would have been the only black player at the time in not only in the team but in in the squad, and you you had to navigate yourself around lots of situations. You know, and these are situations that a lot of people wouldn't have understood at the time. You know, maybe jokes that would that would that would come up, and then you know, players, individuals realised you know that Chris is in the room or Chris is and and it would have been uncomfortable. Lots of um, stadiums that we would have gone to where um, there would have been racist chants, and so and these were situations that you had to put up with on your own as such. You know, as being the only black player in the team. So, so I think it depends which club you were at. I think when you're you're young, my introduction into the team, um, and I and I was greeted very well, and we had a good group of players. For some others, I think at other clubs it would have been more difficult. Yeah, I, I think just one question going to touch on that. I mean, obviously, for people my age who wouldn't have known how it kind of was for you at that time, what was it like being the only black player in that team? You said they made jokes, but did you ever feel it kind of affected your career? Did you ever feel that? Um, people judged you. Like, can you if you go a bit more detail into that? Um, yeah, that would be quite useful. Yeah, I. I um, it, it it was it was a time, it was a time uh, where there was there was always an air of racism, um, and probably the best way to to explain that. And this wasn't, of course, just in football. This was, of course, society as well. But but as a as a black player. You, there would be so many grounds that you went to that you would receive racial abuse. Now, you know, if you're the only black player in the team, you're you're the one that feels that. And and probably what it did do, certainly for me, it drove me on even more. Um, what I knew I wasn't able to do was, you know, probably to have them conversations with with your teammates, um, because. Um, one, one, I think you you um, probably didn't want to get into them conversations because you, at the time you're a young man and you you would have felt them them conversations were were too difficult and and very difficult to explain to those that you, you felt wouldn't understand. So you carried that yourself, and I say that that went from what you saw in the game, um, what you heard, perhaps your own teammates occasionally um, saying to to other players from from other teams, as I said, jokes that you that you you, you might have heard, and everybody coped coped with it different. And, but I think the majority of people um, there, if I'm looking at, you know, uh, where they could get that comfort from, you know, would have been away from that environment. Once they got into their home environment, or once they got with their friends, you know, that was all almost that was almost their counselling. You know, to to be away from that environment and go into the environment that you felt more comfortable. So I think for most players, it was very much get your head down, do the best you can, uh, prove anybody wrong that thinks uh, anything different. And for those, certainly at the, the stages you played that, that wanted to give out racial abuse, that you wanted to be better than them. Chris, you know, it's it's. I'm so glad you're being honest with us, but it is really horrible to hear what you went through when you speak about the abuse, when you speak about the changing room being um, a completely different culture. When you fast forward to the present and you see the amount of racist abuse 
that we're seeing black and brown players go through in this modern era of football. I mean, you've got uh, bananas being thrown at Aubameyang. You've got uh, monkey chants at Lukaku in Italy. Um, you've got uh, monkey gestures at Fredge when he was playing for, for, for Man United. And there's so many incidences, right? Um, Raheem Sterling at Chelsea. And we haven't even gone into the online space where there's abuse on social media. Are you surprised at the levels of abuse we're still seeing in stadiums um, directed at, at black and brown players? Um, no, I'm not. Um, you know, I spoke about the, the, the early years and, and what I went through. And, and, and in some ways, I, I, uh, you know, I think I, I was quite fortunate because you know, I'm probably speaking about general and the things that, that I went through. But, but probably in all honesty, I was at, I was at a, a club that we had a, a lot of good individuals there. So even though these are the things that you felt, certainly it would have been worse for, for players at other clubs. Like I said we had a, 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 a big group of sort of decent um, decent players and, and, and human being. Um, but no, it, it's, it's not a surprise because, you know, I, I think it does mirror society. And I think when, when society is having a, a difficult time, then then I think that's the time when uh, I think what we're seeing rears its ugly head. So do I do I think it's it uh, it ever went away? No, you know I think there are always going to be different levels. But I think when when things become you know more more difficult for people, then this is where um, people vent their anger. Absolutely, you know social media has a, a a lot to do with it. You know, and if I if I think, would it have been different if social media was was like it was, you know, ten years ago? Then I think it would have, it would have been more. Um, but there is a platform now. I think there's a platform now for 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 those that, that want to um, vent their anger, for those that want to um, try and hide behind um, a, a platform. And, and when you hear when you hear of of um, Wilfred Sahar being uh, racially abused on social media by, you know, a 13-year-old, then, you know, I think that shows you where, where we are at this moment. There, there is still an awful lot of work to do. One, one thing I would say about the, the modern-day situation and the modern-day player, it's two things. I think the modern-day player has a, a far better support mechanism now than, than, than at any time in the past. And, and I do think the modern-day player is in a different change room now. I think they have a lot of support from that change room. It's a very multicultural change room, far more than, 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 than years ago. And, and I do think there, there are a, a, a lot of aspects of the game that, that are trying to improve things. And um, unfortunately, in, in their efforts to try and improve things, you know, they are dealing with you know, a society problem. And, uh, and as we've always said, I think in our game, whichever sport it is, is it generally that, that, can, that can mirror that. But I do think there are a, a lot of people that are doing a lot of good work to try and eradicate as, as much as they can. I'm just listening to the point you're talking about around uh, racism in sports, in football, and some of the issues that we're currently having. Um, as, as a South African, uh, when I was offered the opportunity to come to England, 
as a young boy when I was 26. I, I could not wait to get to England, having left uh, situations like what you were talking about earlier. I had no clue that this there was this undercurrent in England. Um, it, it existed. It went on. I, I got here with a clean sheet of paper in my head thinking, wow, this is the land I've always wanted to come to, which mm. England's been very good to us as well. Uh, but how would you go about, from your position, thinking how could you improve on that uh, culture? Uh, well, that, that problem. Uh, yes, and and you you are right. The culture problem is is um, is uh, the 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 right word. Um, it's it's a very big subject, and it it is one that I've been always been very happy to to speak about because in my industry, you know, one of the the, the biggest speaking points for for a number of years now is is you know the lack of of black and ethnic coaches you know at at the top level um so so how do we change things ultimately it's it's always going to be about uh, i think two things um responsibility and, and making people accountable and and education and it's it's in which order education is is always the number one that i think from from uh, an age where i think individuals um, can be uh, educated about what's what's right and wrong could be brought up in an, in an, in an environment that um, they have no biases in in that that, that in environment so that's always the, the number one um but it is about um you know responsibility and you know if, if i look in in our game um with the the, the lack of if i speak about one specific particular subject and that's a lack the lack of black coaches and management uh, in the game uh, and my um, my feeling and my uh, opinion has, has always been is that you know the game the game itself you know allowed uh, racism to exist in the game and this is this is through our stakeholders and um, our governing bodies the the, the fa and it, it is their responsibility to redress the balance and and redress the balance means it can be in so many different ways um, to educate to look for to create an environment that that allows that allows black and, and ethnic coaches to to have a have a pathway so for many many years um, there were some wonderful black and ethnic players that um, that played in our game that didn't see a pathway I couldn't see a pathway in the game um, and the, the the game has a responsibility to redress the balance and to change that now whether that's by education whether that's by uh, law then you know they're the things that, that lots of organizations i must admit are are working at at the moment and i think in in for what we're going through and what we have gone through over the last um, couple of months with black lives matter and some of the racial issues I think there will be some real inroads uh, into that, um, but it starts with education and then it's accountability and responsibility. That's really interesting because our first ever podcast, I don't know if you guys remember, was about the lack of black managers, African managers in the Premier League. And I think mm -hmm. it's down to now, we're, we're, 
still uh, you know at the earliest stage of that where we're, we're trying to overcome this the, the, the active racism where it's now about the subconscious racism of where african and black managers aren't seen as an african or black player isn't seen as just an athlete but as actually as a thinker and as a manager and that's the next stage that uh, of, of this cycle that needs to happen but uh cool. Ahmed, just just wanting to come in there yes that was one of our podcasts but mm. as you know we we are looking at as you just said chris the pathway to that type of position not in the premier league in the championship in league one the pathway has to exist that these managers are getting the opportunity to come through um and and, and apply their trade do well ex express mm. themselves mm. yeah well, well i think that's the you know the the First and foremost, play, um, uh, coaches, black and ethnic coaches, want want the opportunity. That's that's what they want. So they they and a lot of work has been done on that. And of course, we've we've all spoken about the the Rooney Rule and different forms of the Rooney Rule. But what they want to be able to do is is to be able to get that opportunity to to at least uh, at least go through an interview process. So that that's one area that has been you know very, very important to black and ethnic coaches. Um, the, at the, the, the top level, you know, it's about clubs creating a culture, creating a culture that, that, that allows that pathway. And whether that's, whether that's one that's created through uh, education and uh, a, a correct system applied at, at all clubs, you know, or whether that is, you know, legality, uh, and where, when that is, you know, what, what the, the um, a faction of the FA are trying to implement at the moment is a, is a voluntary code for, for teams to uh, employ a percentage of, of um, um, uh, BAME, um, either coaches, um, uh, employees. Um, people that are associated with the, the club, so I think that there are lots of movements that, that, are, that are that have been attempted that have fallen on deaf, ear, deaf ears uh, over the over the years. But I do think that we're, we're actually going to go through some very interesting and, and, and different times. Um, but it's no doubt that in, in the past the, the pathway has been blocked by by. Um, those that, that are in positions that, that are employ people, you know, a feeling, you know, when when I played or when I, when I came through my playing uh, days, as with a lot of young and black ethnic um, you know, players, it was the same. It was the same that, um, you know, good, quick players, um, you know, good wingers, strong, but not captain material or, you know, or not managerial material i mean that that was you know the the feeling and that was what uh, we as a community felt um that 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 the, the, those that made the decisions um that felt and some of that to a degree you know has taken a long time to change and um it's about changing people's opinions Sure, Chris. And I think for our listeners out there, when we talk about the Rooney Rule, for African listeners out there who might not be aware of that, the Rooney Rule is a rule in the um, National Football League in the States that ensures that all general manager and coaching positions for the top franchises, um, there has to be a process where a black or ethnic minority candidate is interviewed. 
there's no guarantee of the job, but it's about broadening the base of people who have access to these opportunities. And similarly to what you have in the NFL in the States and what you have in European and British football is a huge number of coaches from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. And there is a blockage to these former players to getting access to management, coaching, and uh, general manager or director of football positions. So what Chris was referring to there in the Rooney Rule was coming in with an intervention that can provide an opportunity for black and ethnic minority coaches to interview positions. Um, Chris, I have a question around um, a new coaching initiative that's been launched by the Premier League, uh, the Players Football Association here in England, um, and the English Football League, where they're starting a coaching scheme to provide six coaches with an opportunity to coach in professional football here in Britain. Um, it's an it's a voluntary system. It's a system that right now does not extend to uh, the Premier League. Um, I've heard Darren Moore speak about this and talk about this being a wonderful opportunity for coaches to get an opportunity that they wouldn't normally have. It's a it's uh, it's just under two year. It's a coaching apprenticeship that they'll do. I've heard Troy Townsend from Kick It Out, the anti-racism football body here, say that this move is not the step that um, that organization was expecting. It wasn't a giant leap in providing coaches with opportunities. And there are other circles where I've heard people say this is just adult work experience. This isn't a proper opportunity for coaches to get a chance. And I was wondering from where you sit and where you take a look at at this new scheme that's been launched, what, what your thoughts are on it? Mm. Uh, well, I, I am a, a aware of the, the, the scheme uh, and, and uh, I am a supporter of it. Um, and the reason why I'm a supporter of it is because it, it's something. You know, there is there is no doubt. It's a, it's a little bit like, you know, the, the Rooney rule and it has its flaws. Um, but I would be a supporter of it. And I think it has its flaws. And and and, and I think it, 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 there can be different types of a Rooney rule. And, it, and it's exactly the same as this initiative. Um, for me, it, it's, uh, it could go further. Um, for me, after a two-year period, the, the, the most important thing is, is that after that two-year period, that there, that there is a mechanism and a process that, that allows these individuals to, to, to then go into full-time employment you know, from that. So, and along that, I think it, 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 there has to be a, a mentoring program that, that, uh, that, that, that goes with it and also a sort of a counselling program that, that goes with it. So, you know, it, so is it ideal? Can it go more? You know, absolutely it can. Um, but it's something. And I think what you've got at the moment is, is that you've got, you know, quite a few new initiatives uh, that, that, are, that are trying to be sort of processed. Uh, and I think for, any, for anything like that, for me, it's, it's progress. It's something that we didn't have, whatever it was, two years ago, four years ago, you know, six years ago. And, and I, I just feel that if there are, if there are enough initiatives, um, if there are enough um, people uh, requiring that, that, that change, if, if there's that, that real good feel for that change, 
then every initiative I think just adds on to to the next one. So so I I am for it, and I, but I I think it can go more for sure. Michael Emanalo, the very successful director of football at Chelsea, um, who hardly ever actually publicly comments, gave an interview in The Guardian recently. And I just wanted to read you a quote from Michael. He said, the narrative has to change. The narrative right now is always that white is good. So it doesn't matter what Chris Hutton produces as a manager. There's always someone saying a white guy can do it better. People need to do the right thing. Like Martin Luther King said, judge me by my competence, not my skin color. I wanted to read that quote to you because one, I was unaware if you heard Michael make those comments. And secondly, just to get your thoughts on that. Well, I, I, I know Michael um, very, very well. He's an incredibly intelligent indiv individual that, that's, that, um, that has done very, very well for himself. And uh, so, so anything that, that Michael says, I mean, I would, you know, always be a, a supporter. I think what, I think where Michael's coming from is, is that, you know, if we, if we, you know, look at the, the, the chain of command and uh, if we're looking at, you know, a, a lack of um, black and ethnic individuals in the, the visible areas at, at football clubs, you can say this in, in, in life, but if you said as, as managers or chief executives and so, you know, the, the, the decision makers are, you know, all those, I mean, we have a, you know, a, a say in, in England that, uh, that, um, that those that make the decisions, you look at the board of directors, you know, they are generally, you know, older uh, and white, you know, and these are the, the decision makers. And I think until, until that changes, until that changes, there's always the possibility that it's going to be the same, you know, for those that, uh, that make the decisions for those that, that employ those in in uh, other areas, managers and chief executives, for those that employ them. If 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 that doesn't change, if the, if that culturally doesn't change, we all know we all know culturally what a difference the makeup of a board would make if it if it more if it had more ethnicity. I think we know that, um, but I think until that changes, it, it's always going to be difficult. Um, if I may, um, I've always been a firm believer that the greatest lessons or things we can learn the most from are life lessons, personal experience. Um, I'm not too sure that many people know how you came into management as an individual, because we all hold you up as this example, as this one person who's there, who's been there, but very few people know, they can imagine maybe what it took for you to get there, but very few know. So maybe you could share with us as briefly as possible. Yes. How it started in your head, the first job, the progression to the second, then to where you are today. Mm -hmm. And then from there we can maybe look in. Because I think uh, if I was wondering how to be a manager or to counsel one of my clients to go down those lines, I actually don't know what I'm supposed to say. Mm -hmm. But I can talk about what the problem is. But you're living proof that with the problems that exist, there is a path. That's what that path has been for you. Yeah. Well, well, what I'll do is I'll I'll whiz through that bit because it's um, my my pathway is different to a lot of managers. 
So um, I finished playing at the age of 33. I, and, and, you know, if, if we're talking about the, the, the modern day management or getting into clubs and what we what we just spoke about, you know, the, the opportunity for for black and ethnic coaches to get at least get to the interview process. You know, the hard bit, particularly in them days, was is that generally, if you got a job at a football club, a coaching job at a football club, is because you knew the manager and he and he took you with him. So Ozzy Ardila's got the job at Tottenham as as manager, and because I'd finished and because I knew him, he knew I wanted a coach. He took me as he took me in as his under twenty one coach. So that's where it started. That was my introduction. So that was nothing to do with interview process or so. That was just. Um, somebody given a job to somebody who, who he knew very well and, and felt could do a good job. Um, I then went through a long, um, what I always call apprenticeship as a coach. Uh, I, I then was a coach at, at Tottenham Hotspur for some 14 and a half years. Um, for the, the first part of that, working with the reserve team, the second team, but, but certainly for the last sort of nine, nine years, probably, with the first team, as first team coach or assistant manager. So people asked me um, at that time, you know, did I have aspirations to be a manager or um, or was I happy to be a coach? The managers had changed and I'd stayed on as coach. Um, and, and probably for the over, uh, overseas listeners here, um, they probably need to know the difference between, you know, manager and coach. You know, of course, the manager is what we regard as the head coach, and I was the assistant coach. So I'd done that for a number of years, but heading towards the end of that period when I was working with Martin Yol, then that, that desire to manage became greater and greater. I then left Spurs and went to um, Newcastle. Uh, uh, I left Spurs. So I got a phone call from Kevin Keegan, completely out of the blue, um, said that he, he wanted to bring me up here as his, as his um, assistant manager, stroke first team coach. Um, I jumped at the opportunity. It was uh, I'd been in London and Tottenham for so many years, um, and then um, with some difficulties at, at Newcastle with what was going on, I had the opportunity to manage the team. So it was about certainly for me, it was about being at the right place at, at the right time, and I, I at that stage had a real desire to want to manage. Uh, and then, of course. Um, it's a little bit of history. We, we managed to do well at, at Newcastle and, and grateful for them giving me that opportunity to manage. Um, but, you know, that thirst and desire to want to continue managing, that's where it stemmed from. And then, of course, from there to a year at Birmingham, two years at, uh, at Norwich and, of course, uh, four and a half years at, uh, at Brighton. But my pathway is different and it's not for everybody. You know, if you I say in my early period as a coach if you asked me if I felt I was ready for management I would have said no some are it, it, it was my choice and it was it was the best decision that, that I made so just just go back on the on the fact that you you obviously spent a lot of time at Spurs before uh you know coaching and you didn't you know you it wasn't your you know you weren't looking to become the Spurs manager or anything like that but do you think that time that you spent being a coach, uh, being assistant manager, helped you become the manager that you became. Um, and is that something vital that a lot of other people should do? Because you see, you know, Frank Lampard, um, Wayne Rooney, just jumping straight into managerial position. Should they do what you've done and, and get that coaching experience first? 
Um, it's, it's, it, that, that's a really good question. And the answer to that one, it's, it, it's different for everybody. You know, for, um, for me, earlier in my coaching period, tenure or so, um, you know, I didn't think, I didn't feel I was ready for management. Uh, and, that, and that can be, you know, a, a personal thing. That can be a personality thing. Um, that can be a judgment thing on where you are at the moment. Um, but you can be, you can be, you know, a, um, you can be a Frank Lampard, you can be you know, a Glenn Hodler or, you know, an Aussie Ardilas. Aussie Ardilas went from, from being, you know, a player to going into a, 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 a coaching, a player coach role. So some, some are, some, some feel that they're ready for it. You know, the downside, the downside to, to going into a management job early is if you don't succeed, you know, and, you know, if you look at the stats, you look at the stats for, you know, first time managers that, that, that actually never manage again, you know, it's quite high in comparison. So for me, it was, it, it was right. And, you know, the way that I've always explained it was that, you know, I've done, you know, if you're going into, if you're going into any job, you're going into the job as, a, as an engineer or a carpenter, you know, you'll do an apprenticeship first. You'll do an apprenticeship and then you apply your trade. The way that I've always explained it is, is that, you know, I just happened to have done a very long apprenticeship before I went into management. And I think that made me a, a better manager, particularly going into my first job. My first job at, at, at Newcastle was a very difficult time. The, the owner... The owner was selling. The team had gone down from the Premier League to, to the Championship. We had some very strong characters. Um, mm. some players had left. So I, I think the, the, the experience that I'd had working with the managers, you know, taking some of the pressure off the managers, I think certainly was, was good for me. Uh, but I do understand some people feel that desire to go into management earlier and if it's, if it's right for them. But the downfall and sides of that is that if you don't, you don't do well in that, in that first job or that second job, you know, it becomes far more difficult to get um, employment after that. And, and, and it's kind of a, a proof of the story, you know, it's who you know, kind of, uh, rather than the kind of, you know, because it's who you know really gets you into those opportunities, right? For, you know, Lampard and, and Rooney. And, yeah, and, and um, even our dealers as well, with, you know, if he was at the club, he got that position. Yeah, I mean, very much so. I think it's, I think there's, um, I think the process is, is, a bit different now and I think clubs expect you know the process to be a bit different I think uh, over the years it was very much you know we, we are going to pick who we want to, to manage at some at some clubs and some jobs there would have been a process you know they would have interviewed maybe you know maybe three or four managers um, the process but so many jobs that, that, um, that have gone where the club know who they want and you know that that's the one they'll interview that one person and, and hoping that he takes a job and he will bring somebody with him so i think that the process is certainly different now you know i, I think even on any assistant that's going in with um with a manager you know i think the club want more information you know on that now and and i think some clubs might try and persuade um you know a, a, a manager to go through an interview process with with others um, but predominantly, and and I think it's still, you know, I think it it will always be will always be that part of the game where a club know who they want, 
um, uh, and we'll go for that one individual. Chris, I'd just like to um, come in there, just talking about management. I'm just, I'm just going to go through a few things in regards to your career. Uh, taking over at Newcastle, they were in the championship, you got them back into the Premier League. Uh, taking Birmingham City to fourth in the championship, Norwich come in for you, you go into the Premier League. Brighton, you keep them up, um, you take them from the championship, bring them into the Premier League. What goes on with owners that make the decision when you got man, a manager doing this to then fire a manager? I, 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 I don't understand that pattern of behavior because by that premise, Potter at Brighton should be fired at the end of the season. Then. Hmm. And we don't want managers to lose their jobs. But I just, if you can give us the insight into chairmen and their decisions they're making, because some of them, from a supporter's point of view, just don't make sense. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think that the, probably the best way to, for me to, to uh, answer that is, is probably more in general. You know, what, I, what I've always uh, found it difficult to do is, is to, you know, talk about my own experiences and, and, and the reasons why um, uh, uh, owners or uh, club chairman, you know, have, have made decisions that have seen me um, to, to leave a club, and I've, I've tended to to let other people speak about that than, than than myself. But what I can do, I can speak to you as regards general, um, and what we what we see in the game now, to opposed to what we saw in the past, and in the past, what would what would happen, uh, and I would have to say, sort of, you know, maybe predominantly. English or, or local, and family. You know, clubs would be owned by, you know, also directors or, or families and family influences. And, and what you would see is you would see far more stability, far more stability at a club, and far more stability in, in, uh, in the management of that club. And uh, not at, at a whim decide that a manager's tenure um, is up because he's gone through a bad time. So, so that's what we have. But what we have seen over the years is, is a different type of ownership. And with a different type of ownership comes a, a different mentality. Uh, and, and I think what will always exist, what will always exist is, um, you know, we, we see a club in, in Wigan um, being taken over I think during the lockdown period and and being taken into administration some four weeks um, uh, four weeks later now I think something like that will will there will always be that that nobody can understand and nobody can understand why uh, and it's because of the different type of owners that we have now we have also an ownership now that wants success and they they want it now, and hence the reason why um, the there will be certain clubs that you will look at that that may be over, you know, a five six year period have had you know five six managers, and you know it's a culture of they want it they want it now. Um, I think the money that's involved in the game now. If I look at if I look at the championship, I think you will have you will have owners that. That to own clubs in in the, the championship that that, that 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 everything is geared around 
um, getting promotion into the promised land, the promised land, which is the Premier League that's going to produce the, 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 the type of funds that they want to produce. So there goes the pressure. And so when they have a manager, but they feel that's not winning enough games to allow them to do that, there is a, a quick change policy. And uh, what, one thing that we have learned is that it doesn't work. You know, the, 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 the fire policy that we have now and the new manager coming in that will right the wrongs, you know, is, is not a culture that over a period of time works. So I don't see any change. You know, I think the, the, mo the modern day owner is completely different to, um, to what we've had in the past. Uh, and, I, and I just don't see that changing. Chris, I know we're starting to wind down now, so just a few more questions before we go. Ahmed, I think you had a few to fire off. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess kind of what's kind of you've, you've obviously had a, a great manager career so far. What is the future holding for you? Have you ever had any ambitions of maybe coaching in Africa or do we listen to any media speculation that's going on around now? So, yeah, what does the future hold? Um, I, I, I always think the future is bright. Um, I work very hard and I've worked very hard to 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 get where where I am. I've, I've enjoyed to a degree the period of time that I've had out. But. Um, but I made some decisions uh, once I left uh, Brighton on opportunities that, that I had not to take them. And I think if that's if that's the case, sometimes you've got to accept it. It will take you know longer than than uh, than what you what possibly want uh, to find that that right job. I'm very very keen to get back in. I've been out for a year now, and I've used the year well. I think uh, as regards education and, and that enthusiasm to get back in. So that is still there. What I want to do is try and get back in at the highest level possible. And uh, sometimes that's waiting for the, the right opportunity. I think where I am fortunate is, is that my name still uh, is associated with, with jobs and jobs that, uh, that are available. And, and I think, you know, once that's the case, I think that it means people haven't forgotten you. So, yes, yeah, so I'm looking for that opportunity. Hopefully it's, it's, um, it's this summer. Uh, where and when um, I don't know, but but the enthusiasm I have to get back in is is exactly the same as what it was on on day one. So is your enthusiasm maybe rooted in um, <laughs> your 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 wife wanting you out of the house, or is it really because you want to go? Uh, no, it's it's uh, well probably uh, probably a little bit of each actually because. Um, uh, my my personality of, uh, and nature is is that I find it very um, very difficult to keep still. So um, the, the the house is probably the the, the tidiest it's um, it's been. The cupboards are uh, are all organised. The garages uh, are all done. So there are some benefits of um, to the family of being uh, being at home, but also just going back to um, one of the the questions, Ahmed. Uh, asked was about some management and, and, and international management, um, and you know I have uh, had inquiries, you know, to to manage at international level. But it, but at this moment, the the real passion for me and the the real drive for me is very much about day to day. You know, the one big difference, of course, at international level is that you don't have that that you know day to day training ground um, uh, activities, of course, that you get at, at club level. And that week to week of preparation, trying to get results and so on. And at the moment, that's where my real 
enthusiasm is. But international level at some stage in, in the future is, is something that I think I would, I would definitely be interested in. It would be very exciting for you to manage Cameroon, South Africa, Egypt at the same time. You, t you, took, you took my question from me, Francis, because I was going to say, Chris obviously still has a lot to offer the game in the top, top leagues in England and in Europe and around the world. But given the African heritage, given the African roots, somewhere down the line, not right now, would you consider ever coming to the motherland and taking over one of the powerhouses? Um, I, I, I think so. Um, it, it, you know, it's very difficult because you don't know where, you know, my pathway takes me. And, you know, for, for as long as I'm on that road, my, my desire might always be to, to manage at club level. Um, but I would have to say, yeah, I, I think so. And if I, if I look at, you know, African football and, and Francis, um, uh, for some reason, didn't mention Ghana. Um, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not that, I think you mentioned African powerhouses. That is throwing stones, then. <laughs> well, well I, I, think, I think when we spoke about powerhouses, then uh, Ghana, Ghana and the, the Ghana uh, national team should have been the first one he mentioned. I, I think. And, uh, and, and, uh, so, um, so yes, do, do, I, do I think it's something that, that would interest me? Yes. Um, you know, I... I and I know we've we've had you know ups and downs and and um, uh, good times and bad times, um, but 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 African football. If I'm looking at the influence of African football and African individual players, you know, are having you know in in the best leagues in the world, you know, it's it's probably as as big and as great as what it's been. And if I look at you know what are, what a lot of the top players are doing as regards. You know, uh, academies and trying to get young players um, from from the African countries. It's probably been more than than it's ever been. So, uh, incredible talent, um, uh, organisation of the, the national teams. I think is is, is probably better than it's um, than it's ever been. And that comes with the profile. You know that we what 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 the teams now. If you look, if I look at African individuals, top players that are playing. That are playing at the, the, the top clubs and what they have available to them are, are the, the top facilities, a way, a way of coaching, a culture. And, and the fortunate thing is, is that you know, those individuals are, are bringing that experience back to, to the, the individual African associations. Chris, thank you for that insight. I think that's a perfect place where we will stop uh, the podcast today. Um, I know we're all doing this virtually. Uh, this is our virtual barbershop. This is our virtual bride. This is our virtual shisha joint. But when the world has returned to normality, we would like to invite you around to eat with us. Um, our traditional post-match meal is at Nando's, good South African Portuguese food. And we'd love to invite you. We'd like to invite you to join us for that when, um, when we're back meeting in the studio. And um, we don't get sponsored by Nando's, we're sponsored by nobody. So this is a genuine enjoyment of food. So we'd like to extend that invite to you. No, well, uh, much, much appreciated. And um, I, I must admit, I do have a love of Nando's. Um, you know, may, maybe not my first love, but I certainly do have a, a love of Nando's. <laughs> providing, providing that comes with some, some takeaway for the family. 
Chris, easily done, easily done. Chris Hutton, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for joining us on the show. For listeners out there, please hit us up on our social media, OTW underscore podcast, or join our Facebook group on The Whistle Podcast. Chris Hutton, Barack Obama's doppelganger. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. 